The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today we're catching up with Mark Eames. Mark is a non-executive director of Magnetite Mines, which trades under the code MGT, or Mike Golf Tango to be sure. Mark came on board as it were in March with a brief to advance Magnetite's Razorback Magnetite project in South Australia. It's about 250 kilometres northeast of Adelaide and is part of the Braemar Iron Ore Formation, which boomerangs in an easterly direction around the town of Yunta on the Barrier Highway in sparse sheep country. Razorback is a massive 3.9 billion tonne resort with a number of key advantages. They include its proximity to existing infrastructure, the soft and easily accessible nature of the magnetite mineralisation, and some uh, other factors we'll get into a bit later. Despite the scale of the resource and its advantages, Magnetite has a very modest market capitalization, with its shares last trading at two tenths of one cent. So there is plenty of leverage there to the upside. That's particularly so because Razorback is relatively well advanced. It has been the subject of a low capital startup scoping study and could well have a technology advantage from a CSIRO developed ore sorting technology. Now, we all know that iron ore prices have held at elevated levels despite the global lockdown and economic turmoil caused by the coronavirus. Iron ore's price strength has much to do with China, the world's biggest consumer of the steelmaking material, getting back to work and getting ready to unleash an economic stimulus package. The high-grade and low-impurity 68.5% iron ore concentrate product Razorback aims to produce trades at a premium to the 62% and below material that comes out of the Pilbara. And it's also set for continuing strong uh, demand as environmental pressures on the steelmaking industry build. Now, with that, I'm first going to say welcome, to, uh, welcome, Mark. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Barry. Right. Mark, uh, might start out, if we could, please, with uh, you uh, giving us a bit of a uh, background on your technical background, professional career before arriving at Magnetite, and what attracted you to getting on board with the Razorback story? So I've unusually worked for a number of the uh, large majors uh, in in the mining business. I've I've worked uh, in various roles, in senior executive roles, um, associated with businesses selling steel-making raw materials for something like 35 years now, so both on coke and coal and iron ore as well as some other commodities. And I've worked for BHP, uh, Rio Tinto, and Glencore. And during that time, I've been had the privilege of being able to review um, or access um, some of the world's um, great uh, iron ore ore bodies, and to essentially um, develop a, a, a view about the industry. And, and over many years of uh, watching the steel industry getting some sense of uh, how it might unfold in future. Uh, What, uh, and probably the big uh, question mark in steel making raw materials, traditionally 
for probably at least the last 40 or 50 years, the dominant form of product uh, in, in terms of the global art or industry has been direct shipping ore or DSO ores based on hematite. And the challenge with the, the, those ore bodies is that they're essentially, uh, in some cases, starting to run out. And so we've seen the move towards more and more processed ore. The other thing we're seeing is that the, uh, there's a potential for growth in magnetite-based products, which uh, tend to be somewhat lower grade than DSO resources in situ, but can be readily upgraded because of their magnetic properties to produce a high grade product. And what interests me about the uh, Magnetite Mines project, the Razorback Iron Ore project, is that it uh, can produce a high grade um, iron ore product, but it's based on a resource which is um, large and amenable to upgrading. And that really is the, the key to essentially, potentially, its undiscovered value is that the opportunity to produce a high-grade product from a large resource um, located, as you say, quite close to Adelaide is really quite unique in a, in a global sense. Hmm. Um, you've touched on a few aspects of the magnetite industry there, but I was just wondering... It might be a good idea to give listeners a, a, a real understanding of the difference between magnetite and the DSO hematite iron ore that you know, currently dominates Australian iron exports. It is a, uh, a big component of uh, seaborne trade or uh, steel production around the world, magnetite concentrates. Yes, that, that's right. So effectively, um, about, two, about two-thirds of the world's um, uh, steel industry is, is fed with uh, hematite Rituals and about one third of the um, iron ore, and effectively one third of the steel we use, um, comes from magnetite ores. So, magnetite is um, used is the main form of production in uh, within China, in the USA, uh, in places like uh, Sweden, um, uh, and countries like Mauritania and Iran, which actually contribute significant quantities to the world iron ore trade. And essentially, hematite and magnetite are just two forms of iron oxide that both occur in the Earth's crust. Mm. And the hematite ores um, in very rare locations in the world are concentrated in, in very high-grade resources. So essentially, you, you find in, in a small number of places in the world quantities of direct shipping ores. And obviously, those ores tend to have an advantage if they can be produced at reasonable grade because they don't require any processing, they're relatively cheap to mine. So the, the, historically, the main resources uh, for the past um, 30 or 40 years in seaborne trade have come from Brazil, particularly the Iron Quadrangle and the Carajás uh, resource to the northern part of Brazil, and then from the Pilbara area in Australia. Those, those are the sort of two... Um, countries and three areas which have, have sort of dominated the uh, iron ore trade for the past 30 or 40 years. However, magnetite has still continued as a, as a product. Uh, a number of operations produce, uh, continue to produce um, high-grade ores and concentrates. And we've seen a number of uh, developments in the past uh, few years where people have brought on new magnetite resources. Uh, and so that's as the DSO resources run out in the Pilbara. So essentially, the, um, the 
the trend over time is both uh, in the Pilbara and in Brazil that uh, grades are declining. And um, essentially it becomes a trade-off between whether you process the ores at the mine to produce a high-grade product or alternatively use a DSO ore with lower grade that requires the blast furnace to essentially remove the silicon alumina as a slag. And obviously that's a, an expensive process is expensive process that uses a lot of coking coal and has relatively high costs for the steelmaker. So ultimately there's a trade-off between upgrading material at the mine site and essentially removing the impurities in the in the blast furnace. And the, my view is that the opportunity now for magnetite resources producing high-grade products is really starting to shine if, the, if it's based on the right resource. Mm. Well, I guess uh, your commentary there around hematite, uh, say from the Pilbara, where production is running at what annually more than 800 million tonnes a year, it stands to reason that uh, the resource base there isn't going to last forever. So uh, I'm just wondering in, in a broad sort of time scale, when do you see the need in the uh, seaboard market for perhaps replacement of a large chunk of that Pilbara production? from the Bremer and other parts of uh, South Australia? So the um, resource base, uh, there, are, there are probably a number of areas where the resource bases are, are fairly starting to be fairly tight. So in Brazil, the, the, the Carajás region has considerable resources and Vale uh, uh, has recently expanded their operation there, so that has a long life. But their own quadrangle operations are significantly challenged even before the recent issues with tailings dams. And then the Pilbara, if you look at the average reserve life um, quoted by the, the major producers, uh, BHP, Rio Tinto, uh, Fortescue and Roy Hill, um, it's actually the average reserve life in the Pilbara is less than 15 years. Now, there are other resources which can be mined, um, but they um, generally have either much lower grade or higher levels of phosphorus. And so the time frame, the window, if you like, for new producers is certainly um, in the next um, five to 10 years. Um, and that is really the opportunity for magnetite producers to um, enter into the market. And it's, uh, we're in an unusual situation right now that other than BHP's uh, South Flank operation, which is a direct uh, replacement for their BHP's Yandy mine, which is currently being constructed, there are currently no new large-scale DSO mines in construction anywhere in the world. So that's where the opportunity for these new magnetite resources to enter into the market is created. Mm. Okay. Overlaying all that, what's your take on the iron ore market going forward? Some would say we've arrived at peak steel. Is that the case? And what does it mean for a project like Razorback? It's, it's interesting, uh, and I, I certainly don't claim to know more about the iron ore market than uh, anybody else, but it's interesting when you look at um, long-term trends in steel production, um, the US and the UK took about a century from their initial industrialization to reach um, peak production. It then took about 14 years for Japan to reach an initial peak, although there was actually a second peak somewhat later. Uh, and China also followed a very rapid trajectory. But mm. history tells us that um, when peak steel is reached, um, 
steel production tends to be fairly persistent. And so you, know, you certainly don't expect, uh, or I certainly don't expect steel production in China to reach a sharp peak and then decline dramatically. So that's the first sort of comment is that the peak steel doesn't necessarily mean a sudden decline after peak steel. Mm. Second point is that it's notoriously difficult to pick when a country is going to, if you like, become saturated and, and therefore its steel production stabilizes. And so, for example, even Chinese forecasters were getting it wrong during the ramp up of, of China from 2005 to uh, 2015 and uh, dramatically undercalled their own steel production. And a number of observers in the marketplace were calling peak steel in China uh, up to about five years ago. And since then, Chinese steel production has actually increased by 20%. So that's left a few mm. people with uh, egg on their face. So second, so second point is that forecasting the exact timing of the peak is very hard. And then the third point is there are three other regions in the world which have a similar population uh, to China and have significant potential for industrialization. So that's uh, India, the, the rest of Asia outside of China and Japan, and then Africa and the Middle East, um, all of which have steel production at various points uh, at effectively the level China was before it takes off. Now, we could all argue about how fast India or other parts of Asia or Africa will grow, um, but nevertheless, it's not as if the world has become saturated there's still about uh, two-thirds of the world's population living in places with uh, uh, relatively inadequate uh, infrastructure, low levels of urbanisation, and there's no question over time demand for steel is going to be very strong indeed as those countries industrialise, which in my view is inevitable over time. Mm. Now just on Africa there, obviously has a lot of potential in iron ore. I'm just wondering, do you consider uh, the South Australia location of your project a competitive advantage from a, a sovereign risk point of view going forward? Yes, I was. Um, I, I gained uh, significant experience uh, in Africa. I spent five years as head of uh, iron ore assets at Extrata and Glencore, aiming to develop iron ore resources in the Republic of Congo and Mauritania. And um, what that taught me was that, uh, and I should say, um, in the end, we were not able to get those mines into production. And what that taught me was it's, it's very difficult to actually um, maintain a, um, a coordinated approach um, to develop uh, an iron ore industry or an iron ore mine in a completely new region where you need infrastructure you need to bring it on local communities, you need to train workforces and you need to manage construction. Mm. It really is very difficult indeed to um, cause that to come about in, in Africa. And there's actually been a you know, very long history of, of iron ore production in, in Africa. So uh, obviously South Africa itself, the, the Anglo operations there and the, the ASMAC operations have been producing for many years. But it was interesting during the last boom, we did see some iron ore come out of places like Sierra Leone and Liberia, but it tended to be essentially restarts of operations that have previously been in business. Mm. And uh, we have yet to see a completely new successful greenfields operation developed in Africa. Of course, lots of people have been uh, trying and there's some excellent, uh, some truly outstanding iron ore resources in Africa, but it really 
has uh, proven to be very difficult to actually um, coordinate all of the um, conditions required to actually make a successful long-term investment. And that's where I think uh, the advantage of Razorback being located in South Australia, the uh, everything from the uh, financial climate, the, the political stability, the underlying uh, economic uh, uh, um, development of the country, and support for mining generally it makes it uh, far easier to uh, bring on a, a mine in South Australia than it is, uh, I think, in the, compared to the rest of Australia and certainly compared to uh, developing countries such as Africa. Mm, okay. Now, unfortunately, under ASX rules, you can't give us the uh, nuts and bolts of the scoping study, I think it was done last year, into a starter project at Razorback. But I was wondering, can you give us some generalities and the thought process behind going for a starter project? Yes, yeah, so the uh, Razorback is, was, uh, known, has been known about as a resource for quite some time, since the 1950s. The state government actually did some early exploration there. But it really only became talked about as a potential prospect uh, in the last 10 years or so uh, in terms of a major development. And the initial plans that were developed in the middle of the iron ore boom were based on a very large capital cost development using uh, pipelines, uh, slurry pipelines to transport material, using desalinated seawater to process the material. And the total capital was uh, required was of the order of billions of dollars. Mm. And while that um, was technically feasible, I mean, it's certainly true, I think, had the capital been invested, the iron ore would have flowed. Uh, by the time the iron ore prices dipped in 2015, um, the appetite for large capital iron ore projects had, had really passed. So what uh, Magnetite Mines did in the last year is really take a, taken a fresh look at the resource. And instead of saying what is the you know, cheapest operating cost that we can develop to um, win the iron ore from this resource and export it, the alternative approach was to say, how do we actually minimise the capital cost? Um, so how do we actually make sure that we can get iron ore on a ship, but for essentially a low capital cost? And, and the way that developed was then uh, led to consideration of a stage development, so a much smaller scale operation, using existing infrastructure, roads, rail and port, to um, effectively export the material, a high-grade product, at relatively low cost. And so the design of the scoping study was to test you know, whether that was uh, feasible, whether it was actually possible for that stage development to uh, generate attractive uh, numbers. And I'm pleased to say that while I can't share the specifics, um, as you say, under ASX rules, the scoping studies uh, are not able to be released. Um, what I can say is that the company was very pleased uh, with that uh, scoping study. The results uh, are sufficiently encouraging for us to take the project to the next step and enter into a pre-feasibility study to actually do some optimization uh, around the uh, that staged uh, low capital cost development of the, the resource. Mm. Okay. Uh, given the scale of the resource is huge and given uh, even a, a starter project uh, might uh, challenge the company's ability to fund it. I was just wondering, is the intention to proceed on a 100% basis or are you looking to bring in a strategic partner with uh, deeper pockets? 
that's an excellent question. In short, the the answer is absolutely right. As you pointed out at the beginning, Magnetite Mines is a is a very much a, a junior company. It doesn't have uh, deep pockets or large cash reserves. Um, the advantage we do have, though, with Razorback is that we own 100% of the project and we don't have any other assets in the company. So we're very much focused on the Razorback all body and we do, we, we start with 100%. So the objective for the company is to essentially move forward and seek support um, from potential partners who might be interested in working with us to develop the project through the pre-feasibility and feasibility study stages uh, before we bring it into commercial construction. And so we've been involved in a number of discussions with potential strategic investors and, and parties who might be interested in uh, uh, helping us with the uh, pre-feasibility study work. And that's uh, progressing very well as a, while we've obviously been all been affected by the current uh, conditions around the world. Uh, we've had uh, a number of encouraging conversations and, and we continue to discuss the option of taking the project forward to, with strategic partners. Okay. So um, you're able to uh, just outline for investors uh, likely news flow in the coming 12 months or so? Yeah, so we've got uh, the, the, the first part we've just talked about briefly, which is there is potential for mm-hmm. um, some of these discussions we're having to give rise to um, some positive news that of course uh, is going to be very helpful in the meantime however we are actually progressing ourselves so Magnetite Mines currently has a fundraising underway which is going to enable us to start the pre-feasibility study work and what that uh, is aiming to do is we've, we're looking at splitting the pre-feasibility study into two parts um, the initial part will, will be to look at uh, areas where for a relatively uh, small amount of effort, we can significantly de-risk or enhance the value of the project. So in that, uh, with that focus, um, the uh, funds we're raising at the moment will be uh, in part invested in um, potentially additional small-scale drilling to prove up um, higher-grade sections of the resource. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, testing the ore sorting technology, which uh, for which we've uh, have an agreement with the commercial promoter next door, uh, and that has the potential to have a transformational impact uh, on the project. Um, and the third part is um, we'd like to do some more mining and processing studies, which we think, with a with a focus again on selective mining, selective processing, we can actually. Uh, enhance the mass recovery and uh, further improve the uh, underlying project economics. So that's the, uh, the, the potential for news flows, both from the fundraising discussions with partners, but also as we advance some of these key technical areas in the project, uh, we would do expect to be able to update investors on the uh, progress, and we obviously expect that progress to be uh, very positive. Right, okay. Well, there we have it. Uh, an exciting story, uh, um, one to watch as uh, South Australia stakes its claim to become a, uh, a producer of iron ore concentrates uh, in the years to come. And it sounds like Magnetite will be at the uh, forefront of that. So all the, all the best with that and thanks for your time today. Thank you too, Barry. Much appreciated.